recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 12, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Today we will cover Acts chapter 9. I won't. I don't have much of an introduction or anything else really to talk about, so I'll get right into the um, right into the chapter itself. Last week, of course, we covered Acts chapter eight. It, it was probably. I don't know how many um, installments it's been. I would say it's probably that was probably our ninth at least installment of the Book of Acts. Tonight we will begin to discuss the ministry of Paul of Tarsus, which I've been looking forward to. Over the next um, probably 18 months, I'll be talking about Paul of Tarsus in death. As soon as we finish the book of Acts, we're going to, um, we're going to probably do another one of the minor prophets or maybe two shorter minor prophets. I'm, I'm thinking about Zephaniah, I'm thinking about Haggai, and I'm thinking about either of them or simply doing Zechariah, which a lot of people have asked me about, a presentation on Zechariah. Zechariah is a very interesting prophet and quite different than most of the others. He's also a prophet of the Second Temple period, along with Malachi. So I have about, oh, probably about 18 weeks, maybe 20 weeks to decide. But I'm really waiting for a, um, I'm really looking forward to an exposition on the letters of Paul of Tarsus and to silence many of my critics who have been critical of my translation in the Christogenia New Testament as of late. And to answer them, I shall. Okay, the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 1. And Saulus, or Saul, still breathing threats, even of murder to the students of the prince, or the Lord, going forth to the high priest, requested letters from him to Damascus, to the assembly halls, that if anyone should be found being of the way, both men and women, being bound, he would bring them to Jerusalem. Now Paul is described by Luke at the end of Acts chapter 7, as a young man. A neonius is the word. A youth. Storm summer 34, 94. And therefore, it is unlikely that he had single-handedly taken a leadership role in persecuting these Christians on his own. In fact, we saw in the stoning of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7 that Paul's role was passive. He only did what you would expect a youth to do. He watched the clothing. He guarded the clothing of the men who did the stoning. Here, kid, watch these for me. Paul was a youth. He was a young man. He probably wasn't 30 years old yet. That would be my guess, although I'm certain that may also be why he had a three-year delay after his conversion on the road to Damascus, before he went out and taught the scripture. He already knew the scripture. He was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a traditionalist. 
He needed his eyes open to the truth. There are many people who are identity Christians today that were at one time Christian traditionalists and needed their eyes open to the truth. I was fortunate. I knew nothing about the Bible before I learned the identity message. There are many people who were very well read in Scripture before finding the identity message. They had to relearn everything that they knew, and I'm sure Paul did too. It is much more unlikely that Paul could have done the things which he describes here on his own. One man doesn't go into a bunch of people's houses and arrest them and drag them off, right? I mean, it doesn't happen. It's not reality. That, that, that perception of Luke's account here is not grounded in reality. <clears throat> in Paul's later confessions, however, which are found in Acts chapters 22 and 26, and in his epistle to the Galatians, Paul only mentions himself when recounting these events. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are evidently two plausible reasons for this. And I would accept both of them as true. Firstly, Luke's endeavor here is to describe the acts of the apostles, not the acts of the enemies of God or not the acts of the traditionalists who, would, who resisted the apostles. Luke's endeavors to describe the acts of the apostles. And Paul, having become an apostle, only his actions in connection with these events are critical to Luke's purpose. Secondly, with Paul's describing his role in these events in the first person only, Neglecting to mention anybody else in connection with them, although clearly from the descriptions alone, others must have taken an active part. Paul discussing only himself. He takes the entire blame upon himself, exhibiting a noble desire to be accountable for his own actions without deflecting any of the blame onto others. Oh, he did it with me. Oh, those guys, they did it with me. I, I was going along with the flow. I was under peer pressure. It seemed like the right thing to do at the time because everybody was doing it. No, Paul just took the blame for himself. I did it. This is me. I'm the one that did this. I persecuted the assembly of God. That was Paul's attitude. That was the noble attitude. That's a better attitude than, that, than um, most of us would take, I'm sure. In Acts chapter 26, giving a further explanation of his role in these events, Paul stated from verse 10, which even I had done in Jerusalem, and then many of the saints, I had shut up in prison, receiving authority from the high priest. Well, yes, he, he had to get their authority, yes. And upon their being slain, I cast a vote. It is evident, therefore, that these early Christians, esteemed as heretics, were being persecuted by the government of Judea under the authority of the high priests, who were Sadducees. And that Paul, being a Pharisee and an upholder of the traditions in which he was raised, took an active role in that persecution. However, the persecution itself was under legal pretense, 
And it is evident that trials were conducted where the accused were executed. That's what Paul is saying in Acts 26, verse 10. Upon their being slain, I had cast a vote. They were holding trials, maybe show trials, if you will, but they were trials nonetheless. Paul reveals that his persecution of these early Christians was out of zeal for the traditions he was raised in Acts chapter 26, where he states from verse 4, Now indeed, my manner of living from youth, which had from the first been among my nation, meaning Tarsus and Calicia, right? And in Jerusalem, all the Judeans know, knowing me from the beginning, if they would wish to testify, that according to the most precise sect of our worship, I have lived a Pharisee. Likewise, in American politics today, we see that modern traditionalists called conservatives support many wayward positions which are truly not conservative at all, examining the scripture, recognizing the coming of the Messiah would actually be the conservative position. The Pharisees thought they were the conservatives. Today, the masses are just as disconnected from their founding documents as the first century Judeans were from their own, which in this case, in the biblical case, happens to be the scriptures. Today's conservatives think they're conservatives and they're not conservative at all. They have no idea what they should be conserving. Same with the Pharisees. During Paul's period of conversion, he must have realized this, this disconnect. And therefore, in Acts chapter 26, he says, in defense of Christianity, and now for the hope of the promise having been made by Yahweh to our fathers, I stand being judged. The conservative position in Judea in the first century was the wrong position. The Christian position was a truly conservative position. For which our twelve tribes, serving in earnest, night and day, hope to attain, concerning which hope I am charged by the Judeans, O King, addressing Agrippa. It seems to me, as an offhand comment, that the first century Pharisees were akin to today's neocons, pretending to be conservatives, they were really doing the work of the godless Jewish Sadducees. Acts 9, verse 3. And it came to pass in his traveling, approaching Damascus. Then suddenly there shone around him a light from the heaven. And falling upon the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now the 6th century Codex Laudianus Inserts into the dialogue at the end of verse 4, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. For which one may see Acts 26.14, where the line is found consistently in all of the ancient manuscripts. A similar interpolation is found in other manuscripts after verse 5. Verse 5 reads, 
And he said, Who are you, Master? And he, I am Yahshua, whom you persecute. Now the codices Alexandrinus are from Syria and Wadianus have Yahshua the Nazarene there. After Paul's account of this event in Acts 22.8. At the end of this verse, this is important. At the end of this verse, some Syriac and Vulgate manuscripts, along with later Latin manuscripts, and only one Greek manuscript from the 14th century, insert all or part of the following text. And I quote, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And the Lord said unto him, and that's it, that's the entire interpolation, where the word but at the beginning of verse 6 becomes and, in and the Lord said unto him. That's the interpolation. Now, some of these manuscripts have only the later half of that text. They don't have the part where it says, and it is hard for thee to kick against the prince. Some of them have only the early half of that text. But none of this interpolation appears in any of the ancient Greek manuscripts. However, it does appear in its entirety in a small minority of the majority text manuscripts, the majority text being the text upon which the King James Version is based. And therefore, this interpolation which appears in no Greek manuscript before the 14th century, appears in the King James Version of the Bible, which has the part that reads, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks at the end of verse 5, and the balance at the beginning of verse 6, it should all be considered an interpolation. Verse 5 in the ancient Greek reads, and he said, who are you, master? And he, I am Yahshua, whom you persecute. Verse 6, in all of the ancient Greek texts, reads, But you must arise and go into the city, and it shall be spoken to you what it is which is necessary for you to do. Now the Codex Laudianus and the majority texts want the Greek words rendered, it is which, but that's pretty immaterial, it's fairly minor. The text of the King James in these two verses with that long interpolation is basically an innovation, regardless of whether we can imagine that it may have actually occurred or whether parts of that testimony, and only parts of it, appear in Acts chapters 26 and 22. Acts chapter 9, verse 7. And the men traveling with him stood dumb, indeed, hearing the voice but seeing nobody. Now, this is a very important passage in the way it's translated, and I will explain why at great length. The Greek word phone, Strong's number 5456, 5456, is the word from which we get our English word phone. It's 
spelled the same way. And the related prefixes which are formed from it, like phonograph, that prefix phono. That word is properly the sound of a voice. It's basically a sound or a tone, according to Liddell and Scott. And that the men heard it does not by necessity imply that they perceived what it said. They heard a sound. This account here in Acts 9, 7, as it appears in the King James Bible, compared with another version of the account, as it is translated, another version of the account which is given by Paul, right? As it is translated in the King James Version of the Bible in Acts chapter 22, verse 9, is conflicting, irreconcilably conflicting, and has caused much confusion. The critics of Polytarsus is taking advantage of the poor translations of these passages in the King James Version in order to attempt to discredit him. These are the two verses as they appear in the King James Version. Acts chapter 9, verse 7. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Acts 22.9 from the King James Version. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. That's a serious conflict, right? Did they hear the voice or did they not hear the voice, right? Because of the way which the King James Version has rendered these passages, unscrupulous men have blamed the conflicting words on Paul himself. And they use this to undermine his ministry and apostleship. However, when making a translation, when one is confronted with options, one should always check the context to make certain that the translation is consistent. And there are indeed options here in the Greek language of these passages. And I know that language. Well, in spite of my critics. However, the King James Version translators obviously did not bother to examine them. Firstly, the word phone may have been rendered as sound in the passage at 9-7. But regardless of how it is rendered, it should be readily admitted that one may hear a voice without necessarily understanding what the voice was saying. Likewise, in the passage in Acts 22.9, the verb, akuo, Strong's number 191, may be understood by its most basic meaning, which is to hear. However, throughout the New Testament, it is often used to indicate the act of hearing with understanding. Just as Christ often pronounced, that if any man had ears to hear, of course, every man in the room that he was speaking to had ears. Christ said, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Where it is obvious that many people heard him, but few of them understood his words. If any man have ears to hear with understanding, let him understand what is being spoken is what Christ meant. 
at Verbacuo. Strong's number 191, to hear, is to hear, to hearken, to listen to, to give ear to, to obey, to hear and understand. That's how Liddell and Scott define it. And this last sense is used often in the New Testament, to hear and understand. Another of many possible examples of this is how Christ is attributed as having said in Matthew 13, 9, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the verb kuo, both times, appears where it says, hear. As for the words, and here's the important difference here. The words in Acts 22, 9, of him that spake, or of him that spoke, as they appear in the King James Version, these words are from a Greek phrase, tu laluntos, which is a definite article and a part of participle verb. The verb is the present tense participle of the verb laleo, which is to speak or to talk. With the article, it is a substantive, a group of words being used as a noun, a common construction in Greek. The form of both the participle and the article here is either masculine or neuter. It could be either one. It's the same form in Greek for this type of verb. The same form is masculine or neuter. It's the translator's choice. Now, of course, the translator should observe the context, but it's the translator's choice. It's the interpreter's choice. If you were in ancient Greece, it would be the hearer's choice as to whether this was meant to be masculine or neuter because they're the same form. They're in a genitive case, these words. Yet there is no personal pronoun present in this sentence, in this clause. For instance, him in Acts 22.9 in the King James Version. Or, if you want to read the revised standard version, the one who. That would have to come from a personal pronoun, the one who, that phrase, right? The word him in the King James Version in Acts 22.9 would have to come from a personal pronoun. And the writer or speaker, either Luke or Paul, may easily have included such a pronoun if he wanted to explicitly relate such a meaning. These versions, the King James Version and the Revised Standard Version, add the pronoun where it does not exist. Rather, the phrase may just as properly, and perhaps more so for the want of the personal pronoun, be written of that being spoken, because the form of the verb in the article can be masculine or neuter. Of that being spoken, rather than the phrase of him that spake, 
as the King James Version has it, or of the one who was speaking as the Revised Standard Version has it. Furthermore, the negative particle precedes the word which it negates, and here it precedes the phrase, to laluntos, and not the Greek noun for voice. Both of those versions, the RSV and the KJV, make Paul of Tarsus out to be a liar, whether it was intentional or not. And the Paul bashers take advantage of that. Therefore, in perfectly literal translations of the Greek, I will present both verses from the Christian New Testament. Acts chapter 9, verse 7. And the men traveling with him stood dumb, indeed, hearing the voice, but seeing nobody. And Acts 22, 9. And they who were with me surely beheld the light, but for the voice they did not understand that being spoken to me. Here, these passages are correct in their context because they are translated in such a way that the Greek meanings of the words and the Greek rules of grammar are not damaged at all, and yet Paul of Tarsus does not conflict with his own statements. When there are choices to be made in a translation, those choices cannot make the original out to be a lie, cannot put the words of the original speaker in conflict. And if they do, then only the translator is the one who is lying. Verse 8. Then Saulus rose up from the ground, and opening his eyes, he saw nothing. The codices at Frame Siri, Laudianus, and the majority texts have, he saw nobody. The text of the Christogonian New Testament here, he saw nothing, follows the codices, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus. And again, the context would also insist that this was the correct reading, since it is clear that Paul's eyesight was now severely impaired, as we find in the next part of this very same verse. And being led by the hand, he entered into Damascus. And he was three days not seeing, and he did not eat or drink. As to this account in general, critics of Christianity may scoff at the du- Deus Ex Machina, or the God from the machine. However, this account should not be incredible to Christians. This is no different than the flaming chariot which swooped down from heaven and carried Elijah away, 2 Kings 2.11, or the incredible flying machine described by Ezekiel in chapter 1, verses 4 through 28 of his prophecy. Neither is it any different than the statement by Job that Yahweh held back the face of his throne and spread his cloud upon it, Job 26.9. Or the similar cloud into which Moses and Elijah were said to have disappeared at the event called the Transfiguration on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Likewise, Christ himself was taken up into a cloud, as it is described in Acts 1-9. 
If there is a God who created the existence which we perceive, then it follows that such a God can transcend that existence in a manner which we cannot perceive. And Christians should also be mindful that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear, as the King James Version has. Paul's words at Hebrews 11.3. Our perception of reality is not necessarily what is real, and therefore we should not be too heavily invested in this world. Verse 10. And there was a certain student in Damascus named Hananias. And the prince said to him in a vision, Hananias. And he said, Behold, it is I, prince or lord. Hananias is already a, he's already a disciple or a student, having long lived in Damascus. However, we do not hear of him in Scripture until this point. Verse 11. And the prince said to him, Arising, you must go to the street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judah for a solace named of Tarsus. Now let me say that the Greek of the phrase solace named of Tarsus is literally Saul with a name, Tarsus. For behold, he prays, and has seen a man in a vision named Hananias, entering and laying hands upon him that, he may, that his sight may be restored. The codices Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus want the phrase in a vision in verse 12. It appears in all the other major ancient manuscripts, and in the majority text with a different word order. The codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Ephraim Siri have laying hands upon him. The majority text has laying a hand upon him, where the King James Version adds the word his. Here we agree with the codices Vaticanus and Wadianus. Verse 13. And Hananias replied, Prince, I have heard from many concerning this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And thus he has authority from the high priest to bind all of those being called by your name. Now, while this passage seems to corroborate the popular perception concerning Paul's role in the early persecution of Christians, that Paul was exclusively a leader in those persecutions, Hananias' statement does not relate the impression that Paul was the only one whom he heard whom he heard of who was doing these things. And therefore it should not be taken for granted by the reader. Paul certainly was not acting alone. The phrase Pontus Tus Epicaluminus all those being called by which is the way it most often appears in the Christian New Testament, that Paul had authority from the high priest to bind, all of those being called by your name, rather than calling upon your name, 
It may be read, all those calling upon your name, which is the usual reading offered by all the translations. There are five occurrences where this specific phrase is accompanied with words meaning by or on, the, this, or your name, referring to the name of Christ in the New Testament. Four of those occurrences are in Acts. The fifth is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It is currently, it is currently planned to discuss these and other similar phrases at length in the presentation of Acts chapter 22. The verb epikalio in the passive voice is generally to be called by a name. Yet here it appears in a medium or middle voice. Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, where he defines epikalio, indirectly admits that the medium voice may be understood to mean to permit oneself to be surnamed. And he says that of the passive form. The proper use of the medium voice in Greek, although it is not absolutely consistent in Greek, the proper use is that the subject is both the producer of the action and the recipient of the action. And therefore, epikalio, being in the medium voice, would mean to indicate one who calls himself by a particular name. That is the way in which I have interpreted this word here in the Christogenia New Testament. Imagining that these early Christians understood the prophecy of Isaiah 43.1 in relation to their redemption, where it says, But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. We're bought for a price, and you are not your own. Christians, therefore, should be calling themselves by the name of their Redeemer. They should be calling themselves by the name of Christ, which is the very meaning of this word in the medium voice. And the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning their Redeemer. It is not man who chooses God from the King James Version and from all the popular renderings of this phrase, you would think that anybody that calls on the name of God will be saved. Right. That's not the promise. That's not the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. It is not man who chooses God, but Yahweh God, who has already chosen particular men, the children of Israel. Now, this word has not, so far as I am aware, been interpreted in this manner in any other translation where the universalist ideas have always prevailed. I would rather interpret it in line with the rest of Scripture and with the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. And my interpretation does not damage the Greek grammar because it is the proper use of the medium voice. Acts 9.15 
another very controversial passage. But the prince said to him, Go, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. Both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. The Greek phrase, ton ethnon, te kahi basilion huion te Israel, is translated as both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. Now the codices, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Laudianus, and the majority text all want the first article, the, before the word nations. The text follows the codices Vaticanus and Ephraimiseri, which have the article in the text of the Christogenia New Testament. I've chosen to follow those two manuscripts. The Codex Vaticanus is probably the most followed manuscripts throughout Luke and the Acts anyway. With a definite article, the phrase is a form of pendiatricin, a grammatical structure which means one by means of three. Three things are named, they all refer to the same entity. It's a longer form of a more popular form called a hendiatus, which is one by means of two. Two nouns referring to the same entity. Where the items joined by the conjunctions coalesce or represent the same entity. I'll cite you. William MacDonald, Greek and Caridian, page 117. While te, the word te, a conjunction, may be written simply as and, and it usually is in the King James Version, when it's followed by the word kahi, which is the more popular conjunction meaning and, it is both and, or in other words, both this and that. When you have a noun, then you have te, then you have kahi, then you have another noun. It is both this and that which is sufficiently explained by either Liddell and Scott or Joseph Thayer in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, for which one can refer to the word te, Strong's number 5037. Thayer gives examples for te kahi, those two conjunctions used together in Greek. He, he defines them as meaning not only, but also, or as well and as or both and, both this and that, this as well as that. Now, in this sentence, I neglected to render the final word te, the final te, which stands before the word Israel. And it certainly shouldn't be because it shouldn't be and because the phrase of the sons of Israel is not an addition and I will explain that. It represents the same entity as the nations and the kings. All three items here are one and the same, whether or not the article exists, whether or not we follow the Codex Vaticanus. If we follow the other codices without the article, the result will still be the same. 
following those manuscripts which are without the article, it can be shown that there is an intrinsic connection here between the kings, the nations, and Israel. Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, states that te differs from the particle kahi. They're both conjunctions, right? They both appear here. And Thayer says that kahi is conjunctive, and the, the conjunction te is adjunctive. And the kahi introduces something new under the same aspect, yet as an external addition. And then he goes on to say that te marks it as having an inner connection with what precedes. That's in Thayer's Greek English lexicon, page 616, column B. Te marks something as having an inner connection with what precedes. And here we have tonethnon, te, kahi basilion, huion, te, Israel, meaning that Israel has an inner connection with the nations and the kings. That's Thayer's grammar. It's not mine. It's very clear. The King James Version translators and all interpreters of the New Testament missed this, I guess, because none of them pointed out. They try to separate Israel from the nation to the kings. They try to make it look like the nations are Gentiles and the kings are Gentiles and Israel is a different entity. And that's not what's being said here in any case. In reality, if we were to render that final word, te, then the phrase may well have been rendered both the nations and kings both of the sons of Israel. And while it is not literal, it would not do any damage to the meaning of the phrase to interpret it thusly, both the nations of the sons of Israel and the kings of the sons of Israel. That's the meaning, both the nations and the kings are of the sons of Israel. That conjunction, tear, according to Joseph Thayer, marks Israel as having an inner connection with what precedes. It's not a conjunction properly. It doesn't add something new. Rather, it's adjunctive. And connects those items as being. One and the same. Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. That was fulfilled in history. It was fulfilled by the time of Paul of Tarsus when he received this commission. 
his job was to go to those people. Genesis chapter 35 from verse 11. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Now let's see Paul's understanding of the scripture from Romans chapter 4, from verse 13. I will intersperse some comments. Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of society or the heir of the world. But through righteousness of faith, through righteousness of faith, but still the promises to Abraham and to his offspring. For if they, meaning the offspring, from of the law are heirs, the faith has been voided in the promise of no. Why? Because it's for the seed, right? For the law results in wrath. So where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Therefore, from the faith, not our faith, Abraham's faith, the faith which Abraham had, we have nothing to do with it, right? Therefore, from the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring. Not only to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham. Offspring of the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed. Who is the father of us all, meaning all true Judeans and Romans, just as it is written that a father of many nations I had made you, before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. Why would Paul say that? Because Abraham didn't have a son yet, but he would have a son. That was where his faith came in. He believed that God was telling him the truth when he said, your heir. Will come from your loins. Who contrary to expectation, Abraham was a hundred years old. In expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. More importantly, Sarah was 90. Abraham's seed or descendants would become many nations, a promise fulfilled in the, script, in the children of Israel. Nowhere does the scripture say that many nations would become Abraham's seed as the universalists so wrongly assert. And he, not being weak in the faith, not having considered his own body by this time being dead, being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of the womb of Sarah, but at the promise of Yahweh, he did not doubt in disbelief. Rather, he was strengthened in faith, giving honor to Yahweh, and having full satisfaction that what he has promised, he is also capable of doing. Because Abraham believed that, Paul says, verse 22, 
For that reason also, it was accounted to him for righteousness. The children of Abraham's faith, the children of Abraham was confident Yahweh would deliver. Abraham, believing that Yahweh would deliver on his promise, the law had nothing to do with that. That's why Paul says in Galatians that the law which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham cannot annul that promise to Abraham. In Romans 4, Paul was teaching Christian identity. He was telling us that the recipients of this promise are the people who sprung from the loins of Abraham, not according to the keeping of the law, but those people born of the faith which Abraham had. That's the faith of Abraham. They twist that into a pretzel and try to make something spiritual out of it as if we could have it today. Yes, we can believe what Abraham believed, but Abraham believed that the promise would fall to people from his loins, to his physical children. So if we have the faith of Abraham, that better be the faith that we have. It's anti-Catholic. It's anti-universalist. And that's what Paul taught. Acts 9.16. For I shall indicate to him, this is still the words of God, the words of Christ speaking to Hananias, for I shall indicate to him, meaning Paul, how much it is necessary for him to suffer on behalf of my name. Then Hananias departed and entered into that house, and laying the hands upon him said, Saul, Brother, the prince has sent me, Yahshua, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, that you should see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The majority text wants Yahshua or Jesus. And at once there fell from his eyes like scales, and his sight was restored. The Codex Laudianus has restored immediately. And arising, he was immersed, or baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. <laughs> There's a long digression here that I'm going to offer. Certainly not intending to discredit the account of Paul of Tarsus. There is a story in the book of Tobit, found in the King James in the Apocrypha and in the Septuagint, in the old King James Apocrypha which I am compelled to repeat in part, where the title character is struck with blindness after being, yes, after being hit in the eyes with the dung of a sparrow. It's a long story, right? He is cured by being anointed with the gall of a fish on the advice of an angel. From the King James Apocrypha, and yes, curing Tobit with the gall of a fish might have a deeper spiritual meaning. I won't get into that. On the advice of an angel, 
From the King James Apocrypha, I will read from Tobit chapter 11, from verse 1. After these things, Tobias, who was the son of Tobit, went his way, praising God that he had given him a prosperous journey, and blessed Raguel and Edna his wife, and went on his way until they drew near unto Nineveh. These are Israelites of the dispersion being depicted in the book of Tobit. They are in captivity in Assyria. Then Raphael said to Tobias, Thou knowest, brother, Raphael being the angel, Thou knowest, brother, how thou didst leave thy father. Let us haste before thy wife and prepare the house, and take in thine hand the gall of the fish. So they went their way, and the dog went after them. Now Anna sat looking about toward the way for her son, and when she espied him coming, she said to his father, Behold, thy son comes, and the man that went with him. Then Raphael said, I know, Tobias, that thy father will open his eyes. Tobit was blind. Therefore thou anoint his eyes with the gall, and being pricked therewith he shall rub, and the whiteness shall fall away, and he shall see thee. Then Anna ran forth, and fell upon the neck of her son, and said unto him, Seeing I have seen thee, my son, from henceforth, I am content to die. And they both wept. Tobit also went forth toward the door and stumbled, but his son ran unto him and took hold of his father. And he strake of the gall on his father's eyes, saying, Be of good hope, my father. And when his eyes began to smart, he rubbed them. And the whiteness peeled away from the corners of his eyes. And when he saw his son, he fell upon his neck. Although it is quite different from the version of Tobit found in either the Septuagint or the King James Apocrypha, in the Tobit of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in an Aramaic version, we have the following, which discusses the usefulness of parts of a certain fish for curing certain maladies. And it says, in part, this is the scroll labeled 4Q197, fragment 4, column 1. As for the gall, meaning the gall of the fish, it is to anoint the eyes of a man on whom burns had been caused. The scales shall fall away from him, and they shall be cured. It can probably be imagined, if the story is to be accepted, that the surface of Tobit's eyes were burned by the acidic dung of the sparrow. The eyes of Paul of Tarsus were burned by the great light which he gazed upon as Christ had spoken to him. That Paul's eyes were burned in this manner is a testament to the truth of the story of his conversion, and the apostles must have recognized as much, knowing that his eyesight was good before the road to Damascus event. While the scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored to a certain degree, they were never completely healed. Paul discussed his poor eyesight in a commendation that he made to the Galatians when he wrote to them. In chapter 4, where he said, from verse 13, Now you know that in sickness of the flesh I had announced the good message to you earlier. And of my trial in the flesh you did not despise nor loathe. 
But as a messenger of Yahweh, you accepted me, like Yahshua Christ. Now, some people think it's haughty of Paul for saying that. But remember that Christ said, he who receives you receives me. Paul is commending the Galatians for receiving his person. From verse 15. Then what is your blessing? I testify to you that if possible, your eyes being extracted, you would have given them to me. At the end of that same epistle, Paul said to them, at chapter 6, do you see, from verse 11, in how large letters I have written to you in my own hand? Paul had someone write the epistle to the Galatians for him, but he wrote that salutation himself and had to write in large letters due to his poor eyesight. Now, the veracity of these things and the veracity of the ministry of Paul of Tarsus was not questioned amongst early Christian writers. And Paul's poor eyesight is a testament to the truth of the road to Damascus event. To continue with verse 19, then he was for some days, the papyrus P45 from the 3rd century has many days, with the students in Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Yahshua Christ in the assembly halls. I'm sorry, Christ is not in the text. That he is the son of Yahweh. And all those hearing, the 3rd century papyrus P45 wants the words, those hearing. And all those hearing were astonished. And they said, is this not he endeavoring to destroy those in Jerusalem, calling themselves by this name? And it has come here, and it has come here for that reason, that binding them he may lead them to the high priests. But still more was Saulus strengthened. Some codices have strengthened his word. And confounded the Judeans who were dwelling at Damascus, Instructing that this man, a reference to Yahshua, is the Christ. Now that Greek word porseo, Strong's number 4199, is endeavor to destroy here. And it also appears with that same translation in Galatians 1.13 and 1.23. The word appears in the New Testament only those three times. It's to destroy, ravage, waste, or plunder but it's also in the present and imperfect tenses to endeavor to destroy. And that's the way it's translated in the Christian and the New Testament. Of course, Paul did not destroy the assembly of Christians, but he wanted to or desired to destroy them. And the word may have been translated that way also. Many identity Christians follow the error that Paul upon his conversion, went into the Arabian desert for three years. The popular British Israel book, Father's, Father Abraham's Children, by Perry Edwards Powell, gives that same impression on pages 140, 140 to 142. I don't have the book. I'm borrowing this from a cloak from 
a quote from Clifton Emma Heiser's website, but I remembered it and went and looked for it. Perry Edwards Powell, in his book, says of the year 37 AD, that Paul was still in Arabia preparing for his mission that year. And that's a wrong, a very wrong impression, but it is also repeated elsewhere. The truth is that Paul went to Arabia, and he says so, for an indeterminate length of time. We don't know how long he was there. He didn't tell us how long he was there. And then he returned to Damascus, where he evidently remained for three years, or at least until three years had elapsed altogether before he first went to Jerusalem. The evidence, of course, is in Galatians chapter 1 from verse 17, where he says, Nor had I gone up to Jerusalem to those who were ambassadors before me. Rather, I departed into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, then after three years, he says that after he returned again to Damascus, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to relate an account to Cephas, which is Peter, the Hebrew form of the name Peter or Petros, which means stone. Cephas is a Hebrew word, which means stone. That's what Paul called Peter and remained within 15 days. Paul's preaching in the assembly halls of Damascus seems to have occupied most of this three-year period according to his own account, which he provided to the Galatians. And the text here in verse 23 supports that interpretation. The dating of events in the book of Acts is problematic in many places. Was Stephen martyred during the first year after that first Pentecost? Or was it during the second? We have already explained in our presentation of Acts chapter 1 that the first Pentecost must have been 32 AD. And that the dating of Paul's arrival in Rome after, in Acts chapter 28 was 60 AD. That can be established historically, which we hope to establish when we arrive at those events in the later chapters of Acts. The period from Paul's conversion to his arrival in Jerusalem here in verse 26 is three years. Paul's arrival in Jerusalem is described here in verse 26 of this chapter. That period is three years. And from Paul's conversion to his appearance in Jerusalem described in Acts chapter 15 is, depending upon how one wants to read Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, is either 14 years or 17 years. We can take the 14 years of Galatians 2.1 and add it to the end of the three years at Galatians 1.18, or consider the 14 years to be inclusive of those three years. For various reasons, we must consider them to be inclusive of those three years, mostly because there are certain anchor dates later in Acts that do not allow for the period to be 17 years. So Paul must have said after three years, he went to Jerusalem, meaning three years from his conversion, and then after 14 years, he went to Jerusalem, meaning 14 years from his conversion. 
I wouldn't add the 3 and the 14 together to make 17 because when we understand the other anchor dates in the book of Acts, there just isn't enough time. Paul had to be counting his time inclusively. The other dates which could be anchored to events mentioned in the book of Acts, which may assist us, are, one, the death of Herod Agrippa, which is described in Acts chapter 12, which happened in the spring of 44 A.D., and two, the edict of Claudius, expelling the Jews, I'll call them Jews by that time, the disbelieving Judeans, expelling the Jews from Rome took place in 49 A.D., and, and yes, Christians had to go too, I'm sorry. That happened in 49 A.D., as it is popularly, popularly stated. And therefore, the first events of Acts chapter 18 can be tied to 49 A.D. If the first Pentecost was in 32 A.D., as we established in part one of this presentation, and the Edict of Claudius was issued in 49 A.D., then imagining the 14 years of Galatians 2-1 to follow Paul's conversion, there are 14 years between this point, and in other words, to include the three-year period also, then there are 14 years between this point in Acts chapter 9 and the beginning of the events of Acts chapter 16. That leaves three years for all of the events from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 8, and those of Acts chapters 16 and 17. Paul's conversion must have taken place in 33 or 34 AD. Now, I had originally said 34 or 35. I was wrong. And the events of Acts 16 and 17 must have transpired from 48 to 49 AD. The earlier period must allow time for Paul's oppression of the Christians of Damascus and his bringing of prisoners to Jerusalem and their trials there, and, of course, all of the time that Peter and John spent arguing with the Sadducees and, and appearing before Gamaliel and all of that time. And, and the building of that early Christian assembly. The three years also has to include the later period, which must allow time for Paul's journey from Jerusalem and his visits to several places in Anatolia and Macedonia before his appearance in Athens. Yet, because Paul said it was three years from the time of his conversion to the time of his arrival in Jerusalem and meeting with the apostles here in Acts chapter 9, then even this chronology has some difficulties. And all of the events from the first Pentecost to the conversion of Paul may have to be imagined to have occurred in the first year. What may lend to our understanding? and help us resolve some of these issues is the realization that the apostles always counted time inclusively, which can be determined from their own reckonings of the days encompassing the events of the last week before the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. When we understand that, then we can imagine that three years to Paul, after three years to Paul, might mean to us any time during the third year. The way the apostles counted time 
It was simply different than the way we count. It was always inclusive. Verse 23. And as considerable days were fulfilled or completed, the Judeans had taken counsel to kill him. Paul is preaching in Damascus. Paul must be preaching in Damascus for a long time, for a considerable part of that three years, because he, he, he had raised the ire of the Judeans so that they wanted to kill him. But their counsel was made known to Saulus, and they even watched closely the gates, both day and night, that they may kill him. The Codex Alexandrinus has the end of verse 24 to read, and they even watch closely the gates, how they may take, how they may take hold of him day and night. The city, Damascus, would have many gates, and therefore Paul's enemies must have been numerous. The old city of Damascus, which still exists today, has seven gates. And although most of them date only to the Turkish period, There are some extant walls in at least one of the gates which date to the Roman period, which began in about 64 B.C. Verse 25. But his students, taking him by night, sat him in a basket, lowering him down by the wall. The majority text in the Codex Valdianus have the students rather than his students. This account is not as strange as it seems. Many walled cities in the Near East actually had buildings built adjacent to the walls or into the walls or sometimes even atop of the walls. And many of those buildings had windows which opened to the outside of the city. Buildings built into the city walls, actually being a part of the walls, often had windows high off the ground, which went through to the outside of the walls. The phrase by the wall here in verse 25 may have been rendered, rendered through the wall. The Roman period walls of Damascus are still intact in some degree, and they exhibit these things. And I will post some pictures with the notes to this program on Christianity. Verse 26. Then arriving in Jerusalem, he tried to join the students, meaning Paul, and they all feared him, not believing that he is a student or a disciple. For taking him, Barnabas brought him to the ambassadors, and he described to them how on the road, the road to Damascus, he saw the prince, and then he spoke to him, and how in Damascus he spoke freely in the name of Yahshua. Barnabas was first introduced to us in Acts chapter 4, where it says from verse 36, Then Joseph, who was called Barnabas by the ambassadors, which is interpreted son of consolation, a Levite, a Cypriot by birth, Selling a farm belonging to him, brought the money and set it before the feet of the ambassadors. Therefore, Barnabas must have been trusted by the apostles. So he would be in a position to introduce Paul to the apostles, which we see here. 
Now, we've already seen here from Paul's statements alone and, and, and from the text here in verse 23 that Paul must have preached in Damascus for a long time before coming to Jerusalem. Luke referred to this period as considerable days over that three-year period that Paul describes in Galatians. Therefore, Paul did not spend three years in the Arabian desert. If Paul was converted in 34 AD, and since the apostles seem to have always counted years and days inclusively, this may be 36 AD, when he first meets the apostles in Jerusalem. It seems that the events of Acts chapter 15 could have happened no later than 48 AD, and that Paul was converted in 34, or, or, or counting 14 years inclusively in 35 AD, then the events of Acts chapter 15 happened in either 47 or in 48 AD. And sometime before the end of this presentation of the book of Acts, I do hope to make a chart outlining a plausible chronology. It's one of my aspirations, right? Verse 28. And he was with them, going in and going out in Jerusalem, speaking freely in the name of the prince. He had both spoken to and disputed with the Hellenists, and they endeavored to kill him. The Hellenists here were not Greeks, but rather they were followers of Greek customs and traditions amongst the Judeans. They were Judeans who adopted Greek customs and traditions. That's simple. Paul quoted from and alluded to Greek writers in several of his epistles. And he must have been well-read in the classical Greek poets and historians. And therefore, as a Hebrew, Paul was uniquely qualified to debate with the Greeks and their philosophies, as well as also having had a full education in Hebrew scripture, since he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, which he admits in the record in Acts chapter 22. Understanding this, we can see that Paul was uniquely qualified among the apostles to debate with Hebrews, Hellenists, and the educated Greeks themselves in favor of the Christian doctrine. The Codex Alexandrinus actually has Greeks here rather than Hellenists. However, the reading is unlikely since Peter had not yet had his vision and therefore, there are not yet any who were uncircumcised amongst the early Christians, and they wouldn't be attempting to convert them as of yet. Paul disputed with the Hellenists and that they endeavored to kill him indicates that Paul prevailed in his disputes. and that the Hellenists had no other recourse. Paul, having been educated far beyond the other apostles, was in a unique position amongst them to be able to both elucidate and dispute the gospel in the Old Testament in the context of ancient world history. Paul was uniquely qualified to bring the gospel to lost Israel 
to those of the ancient dispersions, to those nations which were descended from the seed of Abraham, as he explains in Romans chapter 4. That was his mission to the nations. That qualification is fully evident in many of his epistles. Verse 30. But discovering it, the brethren brought him down into Caesarea, the Codex Laudianus adds, by night, and sent him off to Tarsus. So then the assembly, the Codex Laudianus and the majority text have assemblies, throughout the whole of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, being built and going in fear of the prince and in company of the Holy Spirit, it multiplies. It multiplied, singular, which supports the reading, the assembly. Seeing that Paul of Tarsus was sent to Tarsus helps to show that Paul must have still had family connections in Tarsus. He must have still had a reason to go there as a place of refuge from the Hellenists who wanted to kill him. While it cannot be demonstrated, it may be imagined that Paul was probably in Tarsus during much of the time of Yahshua's ministry. And for that reason, he was not at all familiar with him or his teachings until the starting of Stephen. And even though Paul very likely traveled to Jerusalem for the feasts during this period, Jerusalem was a city of two million inhabitants, attested to by Flavius Josephus, and the population could easily have doubled during the feasts, as every man in Israel was commanded to appear there during the feasts. And we see in the New Testament large numbers of people traveling to Jerusalem during the feast, as Christ himself did as a child with his parents. So one certainly could have attended those feasts and still not have had the opportunity to see and hear Yahshua Christ as he taught, usually on Solomon's porch in the temple. Imagine being in the, the plaza of the United Nations building in New York City during a celebration. Imagine being at Times Square at New Year's Eve in New York City and the throngs of people there. I imagine Jerusalem during the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Pentecost, was probably not much different, except you didn't have screaming Pakistani cab drivers and wild and crazy Negroes roaming about. But it was probably pretty crowded, and your odds of seeing even a notable person would be a lot slimmer than one imagines simply from reading the general narrative of the New Testament. Verse 32, and it came to pass that Peter was passing through everywhere, literally through all, apparently all of those places mentioned in verse 31, right? Samaria, Galilee, Judea. Peter was passing through everywhere, coming down also to the saints who were dwelling in Luda. 
and found there a certain man named Bahanius, who was paralyzed for eight years lying upon a couch. Luda, a Judean town, which apparently was about 22 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Joseph Thayer in his lexicon says that it was a town of Benjamin, later called Diospolis, city of God, by the Romans. It is the Old Testament town of Lod, mentioned in 1 Chronicles 8.12. It was resettled by some of those who returned from the Babylonian captivity and is mentioned in Ezra 2.33 and Nehemiah 7.37. And that those who resettled it were of the tribe of Benjamin is evident in Nehemiah 11.35. Peter would not yet take the word and gifts of Yahweh to the uncircumcised because he hadn't yet had his vision and the realization that he could or should do so. Here we have a Judean man named Bahenius. And so we have another indication of the extent to which Judeans shared Greco-Roman culture. That name, Bahenius, is a name. It's not a Hebrew name. It's the name of the Trojan prince, who after the fall of Troy is said to have sailed to Italy with a large colony of his people founding the nation which later became known to us by its most famous city, which is Rome. The story is related by Diodorus Siculus, by the Roman poet Virgil in his first poem, the Aeneid, both of those works being somewhat before this time. It's related in many other classical sources. Aeneas is a notable figure in the poems of Homer. Here is a Hebrew man who is named for a Trojan Roman hero in the Homeric legend. Judea was not in a test tube. It was very much a part of Greco-Roman culture. The Hebrews were very much a part of Greco-Roman culture. Verse 34, And Peter said to him, Ahenius, Yahshua Christ has healed you. You must arise and straighten yourself out. And immediately he arose, and all those dwelling in Luda and in Saron who had seen him, as many turned to the prince. Once again, the gifts of the Spirit of Pentecost facilitated the spread of the gospel. Now, of this place, Saron, the third century papyrus has it, Sarona, the Codex Sinaiticus, Sarona with two R's, the Alexandrius, Alexandrinus has it as Saron, without the A, but with two R's. The majority text has Aseron. There's five different spellings, right? This is the place called Sharon in Isaiah 33.9 and 35.2, although other places also bore the name. It was also the name of the plain by the sea north of Joppa and extending to Dor in the land of Manasseh. Verse 36. And in Joppa there was a certain student named Tabitha, which, being interpreted, is said gazelle. And here it is evident that even these accounts in the book of Acts from before the time of Luke's direct involvement were originally transmitted in Greek. Or else this woman's name should have been translated to Greek along with the text and the words 
Tabitha, which is being interpreted as sad, would have been unnecessary. According to Greek mythology, and mentioned in passing by Josephus in his Wars of the Judeans in Book 3, Joppa is the place where the hero Perseus was said to have rescued Andromeda, the daughter of the Ethiopian king, Cepheus, from a sea monster. Stripped naked, Andromeda was chained to the rocks on the coast, resulting from a punishment for the arrogance of Cassiopeia, her mother, according to the Greek myth. Quite often, through biblical lands and races figuring the oldest Greek myths, the same is true of the story of Dionysius, for instance, or the battle of Zeus against Typhon, the giant serpent. Quite often, the biblical lands and races figure into the oldest Greek myths with certainty because Greeks and Hebrews have a common origin and culture. I will read from Josephus' Wars, Book 3, from lines 419 to 421, where he says, Now Joppa is not naturally a harbor, for it ends in a rough shore where all the rest of it is straight, but the two ends bend towards each other where there are deep precipices and great stones that jut out into the sea. And here are still shown the impressions of Andromeda's chains, which attest to the antiquity of that fable. But the north wind opposes and beats upon the shore and dashes mighty waves against the rocks, which receive them and renders the harbor more dangerous than the country they had deserted, speaking of the war between the Romans and the Judeans, right? So we see even Josephus accepted the Greek mythology that puts some of the earliest Greek heroes and characters at Joppa in Palestine at a time when the ancient Israelites lived there. Okay, that's the truth. Greek culture is Hebrew, right? To continue with verse 36, she, meaning Tabitha, was full of good deeds and acts of charity, which she did. And it happened in those days that she, being sick, died. And washing her, they laid her in an upper room or an attic. And as Luda was near to Joppa, the students, hearing that Peter is in it, sent two men. Now, the majority text wants that phrase, two men, but the words do appear in the King James Version sent two men to him, exhorting him, you should not hesitate to come through unto us. And Peter, arising, went with them. Whom arriving, they led into the upper room, and present in it were all the widows weeping and exhibiting the shirts and garments. Gazelle, or Dorcas, Gazelle made as long as she was with them. These men from Joppa must have been Israelites. These accounts, understood in the context of Acts, showed that the descendants of those who returned from Babylon, who were listed in Ezra and Nehemiah, had indeed occupied many parts of Palestine 
and all of those places which were listed by Ezra and Nehemiah. And were not merely concentrated in Jerusalem and Galilee. Likewise, Philip, the last we see of him in the book of Acts, at the end of chapter 8, was left in Azotus, which was another coastal town about midway between Gaza and Joppa. Verse 40, and casting them all outside, Peter then kneeling down, prayed, and turning to the body, said, Tabitha, you must arise. And she opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. Then offering her a hand, he raised her. And calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout the whole of Joppa, and many believed in the prince. And he was for considerable days abiding in Joppa with a certain Simon, a tanner. Peter's healing of this girl is much in the same pattern as that by which Christ had resurrected a young girl, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 5. Again, we see that the gifts of the Spirit facilitated the spread of the gospel, and that the gospel eventually prevailed over so many competing Greek and Roman philosophies and over all the mystery religions of the East and of Egypt, as well as of all the contrivances of the Jews, while so many noble men and women gave their lives on its behalf, is all the proof that a Christian should need of its veracity. With this, we find our introduction to the next chapter of Acts, and the account of Peter's vision, which begins in the home of that certain Simon, the tanner. It wasn't meant, Peter's vision wasn't meant to make ham sandwiches safe for Christians. As we shall thus discuss here next week, Yahweh willing. Good night. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel.